through 14. This is the second week of a Back to Basics series. And if you missed last Sunday, I'd encourage you to go back to our church website and listen to the sermon so you understand the direction of these sermons. And you can also find it on iTunes. We do blog, we do a podcast to iTunes. And if you don't know what an iTunes is, that's okay. We can actually make you a CD in the office if you really would like one. Let's pray. It's not unto us be the glory, but unto you and to your name. May all glory reside in your holy name. May all glory dwell at your right hand. Glory in the church, glory in our hearts. Glory in Christ, glory in the church. May it all redound to you and your holy name. And as we meditate on this text and as we think about your workings in our life, may we not be grasping at any glory, but that any good that comes out of us would be a recognition of the grace that has worked within our hearts to produce everything that you deserve that your fame might be seen throughout all the world. And so, Father, as we look into this world, may we recognize that we are privileged people if we have put our faith and trust in you. We're privileged because there is a lost and dying world who is striving to look for something, and they're not finding it. Lord, in the glory that is yours and yours alone, may we be instruments in your hands to lead other people to embrace and find Christ. And so as we meditate on this text this morning, may our hearts be encouraged, and may we be encouraged by the work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Rolling Stones had a hit song a few years ago called, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Now, I haven't listened to it in a while, but I think it aptly fits a hunger that a lot of people have within their hearts. In this world, a lot of people can't get satisfaction, and they're looking for it in all of the wrong places. And even Christians, professing Christians, can even relate to that song on occasion. It seems that nothing fills the void within their aching hearts. It's because true satisfaction is only found in living God's way. Living God's way actually demonstrates that you have found satisfaction in Jesus Christ. You're not a wandering sheep. You're not going your own way, but you're actually following Christ. And living God's way is not really a fine point of salvation. In fact, it is, it is fused in the salvation experience. It is a part of the good news because we were in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to sin, 
But now we've been mercifully delivered by the grace of God from the wrath that's coming. And this has created within us a newness so that we are new creatures who are in a process of changing. We really have to be living God's way now. We can't be living our own way. Our loves, if we have been born again, have been, they've been turned, they've been reorientated towards Christ. I think one of the most extraordinary transformations in nature has to be the change of a caterpillar to a, to a, a butterfly. You know, it's the same creature... But the changes that have occurred within that insect are so profound, are so profound that it's, it's like it's new even though it's the same as it has been. Everything's completely different. Now, if a, a caterpillar were to start to act like a butterfly, there'd be a problem. It couldn't get off the ground, could it? And it would be a real problem if a butterfly tried to act like a caterpillar. It wouldn't work. It would actually, if it tried to do so, it would begin to forfeit the freedom that it has now, that the freedom to be able to fly. It would forfeit those things by returning and trying to be like a caterpillar again. And in the same way, a Christian, when a person becomes a Christian, a great transformation takes place within their hearts. And because be- Becoming a Christian is an act of God in the heart. That stubborn will has been replaced and given a soft spiritual heart. So that when a person is born again, they ought not be living in the same patterns that they once lived in. I've had the experience of visiting Wayne County Corrections on occasion. Now I understand at the at the state prison, that uh, the inmates typically wear brown from head to toe. Um, If you're criminally insane, you wear blue from head to toe, I understand. And if you're transported, then you wear orange from head to toe. How wise would it be for me to go visit somebody wearing brown from head to toe? I might not get out of there again. In the same way, it's foolish for free people who have been transformed, free women to dress as prisoners again. And the truth is, if you value your freedom in Christ, you don't dress for slavery. If you found Christ, your true freedom from the bondage of sin means that you will dress for freedom. You will dress with the garb of Christ. There will be changes that will be evident and be seen. And this text, I believe, points us in this direction. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And I believe that Paul is teaching us that living God's way means dressing for freedom and clothing yourself with Christ. And so let's read the verses here and give some time to meditating on the meaning. In verse 11 it says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people zealous, excuse me, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, I want us to three, see three, three movements that are ours in Christ here this morning that put us on the way of living God's way. And the first is that God's grace has granted freedom from the bondage of sin. This is in verse 11. God's grace has done this. This is a past event. God's grace appeared. What does that mean? That God's grace has appeared. Well, in a word, that's referring to Jesus. Salvation by grace of God has appeared for all people, he says. That is, he's, he's made salvation known in a way that's previously been unknown. And he's made it known for all the world to see. The perfect atonement of Christ, the eternal Son of God, was made available to all men. All men became savable. There is a universal and unlimited provision for this. That every sin of every person finds its answer in Jesus in His grace alone. No nation, no tongue, no person is excluded from this saving work. And those who perish in the horrors of hell have got to walk over the blood-stained cross of Christ. By His nature, our God is a saving God. His gracious gift of salvation has appeared to all. And that includes you and it includes me. Last Sunday we saw from Romans and Ephesians that the human condition of sin requires movement from God. While we are free to respond to the gospel, there's something inside of us that's stubborn. There's a refusal to respond, and it's called sin. We have natural abilities to, to respond, but in every heart there is a stubbornness and a love for darkness rather than for a love of light. John 3.19 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because they're works were evil. And that stubbornness is a bondage that makes it impossible for a response unless the Holy Spirit breaks through. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The goodness and the grace of God is not something that you hang your hat on without the working of the Holy Spirit to do a work of desire to, for that. And in Titus 2.11, we read that God's grace overturns this bondage of sin, this chains. And God's grace creates the life, blood for the salvation for all people. Charles Wesley John Wesley's brother wrote these words that we like to sing. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, 
fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray. God's eyes diffused a life-giving ray. I awoke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed thee. These are the things that we sing about of God's merciful working within our hearts to make the cross desirable and for light to be loved. Now God's grace not only creates life, it also creates a love for God and a love for what God loves. And this love for what God loves comes with a power to wage war on sin. And so we're thinking about living in God's way, the gospel empowers us through the Holy Spirit to do so. In Titus 2, verse 12, it says, The grace of God has appeared, first, bringing salvation for all people, two, training us to renounce ungodliness. The grace of God has appeared and it's done these two things. And we're looking at that second thing, that the grace has done. That God's power is yours to wage war on the power of sin that we live with now. In verse 12, he trains us to renounce, literally to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. You know, there are some who teach that repentance is actually not necessary for salvation. And that faith is simply the intellectual reflection, the assent, that there is an offer of salvation. In other words, good works may or may not follow faith. In other words, salvation is separated from a discipleship. And I see this text saying, no way. Faith creates, faith in the grace of God creates a work and a living out of your faith. God's grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness, literally to say no to, this, to these practices and these worldly passions. Someone who fought very deeply with his passions was a man by the name of Augustine. Augustine had lived an immoral life. In fact, he lived with a woman whose name has been lost to history. But he struggled with his thoughts to keep them holy. He had a restless heart. And one day when he was thinking on whether he would ever have victory over his sin, he says this, I was asking myself these questions and weeping all the while with the most bitter sorrow in my heart when all at once I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Again and again it repeated the chorus, Take up and read. Take up and read. And I stemmed the flood of my tears, and I stood up, telling myself this could only be God's command, open up the book of scriptures. And in silence, I read the passage of scripture that was in those pages, the first thing my eyes laid on, and this is what he, this is what he read. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, 
not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what he read. And this is what he said in reflection on those words from Romans chapter 13. It was though the light of faith flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. The grace of God was teaching him to say no. And immediately after this, Augustine turned the woman away that he was living with and he lived celibately for the glory of God. Now, Augustine read from Romans 13. He read, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I think we have some indication in Titus of what that means and how we live out God's God's will for our lives. God's grace, I believe, you can see in verse 13, teaches us how to renounce the worldly passions. Okay. What is ungodliness and what is worldly passions? What's the difference between the two? Is there a difference between the two? I do believe that there is. I believe that in this text, ungodliness refers to those acts of sin which we do They're the dark things that we do in order to get to the dark goals that we want. Instinctively, men and women love darkness rather than light. They love it. In other words, the immorality, the lying, the deceit, the slander, the fits of anger, the theft, the drunkenness, the divisions, these are dark actions And these dark actions are filthy rags that we wear on the outside, but they're indications of a love for something dark that we so desperately want. There's a passion on the inside. And so it's important for us to understand that the grace of God teaches us not just to stop doing those external things, but it also does something on the inside of our hearts, to change our hearts to enjoy the light. Some of us may not commit adultery. Some of us may not steal, and some of us may never, ever be convicted of murder. And we may dress up on the outside, but eventually, if we don't deal with the worldly passions on the inside, we're going to demonstrate somehow relationally that we're still underneath of the bondage of sin. And what we love most is going to start to be reflected on the outside. What is it that we love most? It's worldly passions. 1 John 2, 15 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. And you see, our natural desires run to the darkness. And sinful actions manifest themselves in how we carry out our life. What is it that we're valuing most? What do we love more than God? I know most of us spend a lot of time in some sort of work. So it's essential that we understand even that a 
Something as simply harmless as work can become a passion that creates a, a desire for some worldly passion. You know, I know God is a working person and there's a certain sense where we have to be busy about the things we're responsible for. But if we're not careful, we can become so disordered in our loves and affections that we forget God. And we don't love him nearly as much as we love our workplace environment. And these things can become worldly passions. In, in our workplaces, these things can manifest where things ultimately come about you and your own personal kingdom and your own personal. Work is not wrong, but we can replace God as our first love by it. We might desire people to perceive us in a certain way. And so we pay the dues and we make sure that everyone sees us as being this way. That in itself is a worldly passion. Because ultimately, we should be wanting people to see Christ and only Christ. And if we're living God's way, our desires and our love is going to shift towards God. In a workplace environment, you can tear down someone's character very quickly by choice words at the right time in front of the right set of ears. And in that case... You're manifesting relational sin because there is a worldly desire inside. So God's grace teaches us to, to renounce these passions. But it does us something else. It doesn't just renounce it. We have to confess it as sin. But then we, God's grace teaches us to practice holy affections. And so living self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of, and the glory of our great Savior Jesus Christ. There is a new affection. There's a shift that's going on here. And that's what God's grace teaches us. There is resurrection power in the cross. In the, res, in the resurrection from the grave, we say no through the cross, and then we say yes to Christ through the resurrection. And so we have to repent of the attitudes at the cross and then go forward with the resurrection and the Spirit of Christ within us. Turn over to Galatians with me. Galatians chapter 5. Paul says it in a different way here. We're no longer under the bondage of sin. We're now new creatures. We're transformed. We have new affections. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Drop down to verse 13 with me, please. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. And for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not underneath of the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are socially unacceptable practices, and there's also some respectable sins in here as well. And in verse 22, he says, but here is the way of the resurrection. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is joy. It is peace. It is patience. It is kindness. It is goodness. It is faithfulness. It is gentleness. It is self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so what Paul is saying in Titus is short form for what he's saying here in Galatians. The cross of Jesus Christ is where all of these sinful desires go. And they're replaced by the Spirit of Christ within the heart. And so the grace of God teaches us to practice holy affections. It's living with God's favor in view and his forgiveness It's not that you have to live to his performance expectations, but it's not like you're saying please to God. It's now like you're saying thank you for what you have done for me. How can I go back and live with this kind of heart attitude again? Thank you, God, for saving me from these worldly affections and these passions and these acts through the cross of Jesus Christ. And all of your life now becomes a thank you to God for his grace. And so we can have confidence that God will be continuously gracious to us. We don't perform now out of some sort of a sense that if I don't keep up this jog, if I fall, if I'm like running this 5K and I'm like running and I can't quite get to the finish line, that somehow God's going to slit my throat. That's not what it is. You're running a race because you love the one at the end of the line. You want to see Christ and you want to see him in all of his glory. And so living God's way means dressing for freedom. We, we don't go back to the pig pen again. We get cleaned up and we live for him, clothing ourselves with Christ. And so living God's way is like a marathon But we're looking for the goal. And the third thing that grace really teaches us here in the end here is that God's glory is going to bring us ultimate freedom for the influences of sin that we experience. Now the bondage of sin has been broken, but we still live with sin practices and sinful thoughts. And now, someday, finally, all of this will be done away with. And we have to believe that. We have to sink our faith in that. Jesus is coming again. And he's going he's to see us and we're going to see him face to face. How great will that be? 
And living God's way means that we're anticipating his glorious appearance. Verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3, 20 to 21. He said, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. His ultimate power will be on the display in the transformation of our bodies and souls. But you have to be aware. Satan is a discourager. He attacks and he slanders believers. He wants you to fail. He tells you that God is not good. He's not coming again and he will not deliver you from this burden that you're bearing. A believer cannot be possessed by the demonic host, but they can certainly be oppressed by the demonic host. Charles Spurgeon sometimes called the prince of preachers because he communicated so well. In the late 1800s, he once told his congregation this, This week has been, in some respects, the crowning week of my life. He said this, It was the crowning week of my life, but it closed with a horror of great darkness of which I will say no more than this. That's Extreme. We will be living with discouragement. And Satan will oppress us. Does this mean that Charles Spurgeon was sinning when he fell into despair? I don't believe necessarily. I believe that the Bible teaches us that Jesus himself was a man of sorrows and that he is acquainted with our grief. And if Jesus, the sinless Son of Man, experienced the darkness of sorrows and Jesus went through the garden of Gethsemane in sorrows, then that's good news. Because we have a high priest who's acquainted with our sorrows. He knows all of it. He knows all of our pain and knows the discouragement that we might face trying to live God's way. But even in the discouragement, Spurgeon had anchored his faith in one who was coming, in Christ. And that's what faith is. It's a forward-looking confidence that the God who has promised deliverance from darkness will sustain you and bring you to a place where the light floods in again. And when we cry out to God, we are persevering in our faith. When we are praying to God for deliverance and anguish of our souls, God is pleased with his children who come to him. Job said this, in the midst of all that Job suffered, he said, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, 
whom I shall see myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. That's a faith that perseveres. He was in the midst of great discouragement, but he was still waiting. He was waiting for the appearance of his, fa- his, his heavenly Father. God's glory will ultimately bring relief from all that we experience, whether it's the emotional despairs that we face or the temptations that continually swarm around us like a, like a horsefly in the summer. God's glory will ultimately deliver us from sin. But we can clothe ourselves in the freedom of Christ by submission to the Holy Spirit who tells us to take that sin to the cross, confess it at the cross, leave it at the cross, and go forth and walk for Him. Living God's way means dressing for freedom. It means clothing yourself in Christ. You know, Mark Twain once told a story of two boys who traded clothes for the day. They looked a lot alike. One was a prince and the other was a pauper. And like twins who sometimes fool their teachers in school, they thought it would be great fun. But when they exchanged their clothing, they entered into a a world and their life became a train wreck. And I believe that in the same way, you and I have been created for freedom and so Clothe yourself in Christ. Look at your passions. What is it that you love? Do you love the darknesses of this world or do you love God above all else? Psalm 1611 says, You have made known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Can you imagine? God's right hand, there are pleasures? Come on. We look at our life. We fill our lives with all kinds of pleasures. Is it possible that we can't imagine the pleasures that are seated at God's right hand because we're so filled with the pleasures of this world? What are we living for? Are we living for God? Are we putting away the external sins of slander and gossip and complaining and strife and anger and malice and pornography or any other form of immorality, whatever it might be? Are we doing that? Or are we clothing ourselves with Christ? Clothing ourselves with Christ is not simply external performance. It's the exercise of the inner person the inner man, putting to death the dark loves and growing in our love and affection through Christ can only come about by the Holy Spirit. And then are we looking for the glorious return of Christ? He is coming again. We anticipate the rapture of his church. Praise God he's coming. And as we consider the basics of living God's way, we and I, you and I, we need to examine our hearts. We need to spend time thinking. Is our love for God growing? Are we pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness? Are we pursuing our own kingdom? Maybe we're not even born again. Maybe we made a profession of faith and we thought that we could do discipleship later. 
No, it comes together. Being saved by God means God puts you on a path for discipleship now. And coming to Christ means responding to Christ every step of the way. Are you zealous for good works? Verse 14. I would encourage you to reflect and analyze your heart. I said it last week. I'm in the foyer. I would love to talk with you. I want you to grow in Christ. I want your heart to be whole. And it's the prayer of every one of our elders here. So I encourage you as we reflect and pray in the closing hymn, what God might want you to give over to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Help us to examine our hearts. Would it be possible that there are some here who have thought they have been one of the children of God, but they've been living a lie? They've been living a performance-based expectation with those around them, but they know their own heart, and they know that you know their heart. Would they turn to you, Lord? Would they believe and be born again? I pray, Lord, as we sing this song, that you would work in our hearts, that we would examine our loves, and that we would be, be ready to reorder our disordered loves and focus our hearts on you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.